Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. First tonight, let's go to Virgin Media News reporter Paul Quinn at Government Buildings for the very latest on the public health crisis. Uh, Paul, we heard repeatedly today that Ireland has the highest number of cases per 100,000 anywhere in the world. Quite startling, and yet there was a glimmer of hope at that NEFET briefing this evening. Yeah, quite uh, startling, as you say, quite shocking figures to think where we were just a couple of uh, weeks ago and just before Christmas. But uh, certainly the situation is very serious, particularly in the country's hospitals. Uh, Kira, today the HSE boss Paul Reid saying it was beyond strain. It's been described as a national uh, emergency. And look, we know the frontline workers, healthcare workers, they're already exhausted. And uh, the warning is that the worst has yet to come. If we just take a look at the situation in the country's hospitals as things stand tonight, we can see that there are 1,582 people with COVID-19 in the country's hospitals. 146 of those are in ICU and almost half of them are on ventilators. So some very sick people in the country's hospitals tonight. Uh, now, Professor Philip Nolan at that press conference earlier on this evening saying that we're expected things to peak in the next 10 to 14 days but that we could see 2,500 people in hospital and around 400 of them in the ICU. But also uh, tonight at that NEFET meeting. It has to be said, some uh, glimmer of hope, some positivity. Uh, officials saying that it appears that the case numbers uh, are stabilising, which is some good news, that the positivity rate is also continuing uh, to fall. The number of close contacts are falling, but still the numbers are extremely high. If we take a look at, at those figures that were uh, uh, reported by NEFA this evening. 4,929 people, uh, new COVID cases and a further eight uh, deaths. And of course, we also heard this evening that one in 79 people have got COVID-19 in the last two weeks and that uh, the spread of the virus here is the worst uh, in the world. So certainly a, a lot of um, a lot of things to take on board. A lot of uh, talk from NEFA this evening, from the HSC, just urging people to hold firm that no matter, although we are seeing trends that, that are in encouraging that we may be turning a corner for people to stay safe and to stay at home. And we know the World Health Organization also held a briefing today and two very interesting comments, one on the situation in Ireland and who's or what's to blame and also a third variant of the virus now. Yeah, I know we've heard so much about UK variants and the variant from South Africa, which has also been identified here. But yeah, some interesting comments. Uh, the Taoiseach had alluded to this UK variant and there's been a lot of talk about the impact that it's played in our rising case numbers here. But Dr Mike Ryan, who's well known to our viewers uh, from the WHO tonight, saying that the UK variant is not to, is not to blame for our rising case numbers, that it is the socialising uh, that happened before, uh, before Christmas. It is a reduction uh, in our 
physical contacts or, or reduction in uh, uh, the social distancing. And he said that really is what is to blame and those mixing up people uh, before Christmas, not the UK variant. But he says he has been speaking to Dr Tony Hoolan, our chief medical officer, and he says that there are encouraging signs that the restrictions that are in place here do seem to be working. And yet, as you say, Kira, finally tonight, the WHO also confirming that Japan uh, has found a new variant in a number of passengers that flew in from Brazil over recent days. And just very uh, briefly, Paul, we know the education minister today was meeting with groups who represent children with special educational needs. Anything concrete emerge from that meeting? Look, I think the four groups that met uh, today, Inclusion Ireland, um, the uh, um, As I Am, uh, Down Syndrome Ireland, they were all uh, pretty happy with how that meeting went. Nothing concrete. They would like to see uh, schools, special schools, special classes reopening from next Monday. The ministers on their part have said that it is a priority for them. They'd like to see that happen as soon as possible, but negotiations will continue over the next couple of days to try and get the various stakeholders and the unions on board. All right, we'll leave it there. Thanks as always, Paul Quinn. Uh, Tony Fitzpatrick. Patrick is Industrial Relations Officer of the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation and joins me now for more on what's happening on the healthcare front line. And Tony, we heard there that Paul Reid from the HSE tweeted this evening, our hospitals are beyond strain. That's how he put it. What are your members telling you? Yes, and that's the picture that our members are outlining. Um, it's an extremely difficult situation. Like It's important to note that there's 1,600 people in hospital with COVID-19. That's double what was in hospitals at the peak back in April. There, the number of people that have tested positive for COVID-19 in the last two weeks is the same for the entire period from March to October 2020. So anything that we've seen in 2020, we've surpassed every peak that existed at that stage. The, the transmission within the community is significantly high. Our hospitals are under severe pressure. You've seen how Letterkenny had to treat patients in ambulances outside their emergency departments last evening. And that's not just Letterkenny, that's right across all our acute hospitals. And I think it's important to realize that as well as the demand that's been placed upon them, and indeed nurses and midwives and doctors and other healthcare workers are working tremendously hard to meet that demand. But at the same time, in our acute hospitals today, there are 3,500 staff absent because of COVID-19. Across our nursing homes, over 1,000 staff are absent. So when you have that demand on our healthcare systems, and we have that amount of staff out, it's putting a massive amount of pressure on those staff, but they're rising to that challenge and they have to be commended for how they are rising to that challenge, but it's extremely difficult for them. We've been told time and time again that the next 10 days, the next fortnight is critical because the peak still hasn't arrived in terms of hospital admissions. And quite shocking reports in the papers over the weekend that the HSEs had to reissue those ethical guidelines should it come to the point that doctors and nurses are having to ration treatments. Are we anywhere near that point, Tony, frightening and all as it is? Well, I think I think the projections, we're, we're ahead of projections. Um, there's no doubt that the numbers that will be in hospital is going to rise significantly in the next seven to 10 days. The numbers in our intensive care units are going to rise. So you're right, that's very difficult 
ethical dilemmas that will face doctors and nurses in the next seven to 10 days. It's important that people realize they can make a difference, you know, but probably it'll be seven to 10 days till we see the benefit of them staying at home, staying apart, ensuring that they're not interacting with others. People really have to stay at home and follow the public health advice. But, you know, the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organization back in March, when this pandemic was arising, we met with our colleagues uh, virtually in Taiwan and China um, and Italy, and we saw what was happening in those locations. So there was a massive response at that time. But Italy back in March and April was facing those uh, dilemmas. So it's really important that people realize how serious this can get very quickly. And there is immense pressure, immense pressure on our healthcare system at present. There's a light at the end of the tunnel with regards to a vaccination, um, but we are reaping what we sowed. And that is what's happening because of the, the government lifting certain restrictions in December. That is a direct result of that is what we're seeing now. And that's putting immense strain, strain on our frontline healthcare workers. But let's keep people safe. Let's keep our loved ones safe. Let's show the respect for those healthcare workers by people heeding the public health advice and staying at home. And Tony, you mentioned their absenteeism and we know many healthcare workers have contracted COVID-19 or close contacts of people who have COVID-19. But you've also written today to various ministers because you want education facilities in this country reopened for frontline staff. Yes, so the health sector trade unions and associations, so ourselves, SIP2, FORSA, CONNECT, the IMO, the IHCA, the Psychiatric Nurses Association, the Irish Dental Association, collectively, we've written to three ministers, Minister Donnelly um, of Health, uh, Foley of Education, and Roderick O'Gorman um, in Children and Youth Affairs, because we're really concerned. We're, at, we're facing massive pressure on our healthcare system. Healthcare workers are doing their best, but as I said, over 13,300 healthcare workers, and that's probably a conservative, conservative um, figure, have tested positive, positive for COVID-19. So they're paying a significant price. They want to go to work. They want to make sure that the patients are looked after, but they're being, their hand is, one arm has been tied behind their back because of the issue of childcare. 75% of healthcare workers are female, 98% of midwives are female, 92% of nurses are female. So childcare is a massive issue for them. And as has occurred in Northern Ireland and the United Kingdom, we believe primary and secondary schools should be opened up based on public health advice for the children of healthcare workers to ensure that they're able to attend work. And also with regards to childcare, that additional supports are required in that regard in order to allow healthcare workers to go to work. We want to take on this fight. We want to assist, get us out of this mess that we're currently in. Our nurses and our doctors want to be vaccinating if we have enough supplies. And indeed we're doing that in the last week um, alone, um, you know, over 35,000 people were vaccinated. 40,000 people will be vaccinated this week. That's nurses and doctors rolling up their sleeves and getting, doing what's necessary to get us out of this mess. But we need those departments to assist our healthcare workers go to work and maintain those services. So what would you say then, Tony, to teachers' representative organisations who might be watching this evening who are saying, we have not been given the reassurances that our schools are safe and we are not putting our staff at risk. We simply shouldn't have to do that. 
Well, well, obviously the healthcare, um, the unions and associations that represent healthcare workers know full well the requirement for a safe place of work um, for employees. Um, but, you know, our healthcare workers are going to work. They're following the infection prevention and control guidelines. They're wearing the PPE and it's extremely difficult for nurses and, and midwives and doctors and other healthcare workers to be working for 12, 13 hour shifts and longer now because of the man that's been placed upon our services, wearing masks, wearing goggles, wearing um, gowns and PPE. It's extremely difficult for them. They're missing their breaks. They're working longer past the end of their shift, etc. Some of them are coming in early. They're so dedicated to the cause. So I think what we've carefully said in the letter to the three ministers, that they need to carefully consult and engage with the unions that represent teachers, but all of the stakeholders to see if they can put in place the proper protections for the staff that work in the education and the childcare sector to allow them to provide services to the, st to the okay. children of healthcare workers. It's extremely difficult for healthcare workers to balance everything. And even heroes need support and, 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 and assistance at times. Okay. And that's all we're asking this government to do. They failed to do it back in March and April, but we believe those departments need to get together and provide assistance to allow healthcare workers to continue the fight and care for patients in our hospitals and all our right. community settings, and also take on the next challenge of ensuring that everybody gets vaccinated. Okay, we have to leave it there, but thank you for your contribution this evening, uh, Tony. More on the pandemic later in the programme. But first, to one of today's other major stories. Survivors of mother and baby homes have reacted angrily to the leak of a long-awaited report in a Sunday newspaper. A full state apology is expected from the Taoiseach and the Dáil on Wednesday after the Cabinet considers the final report tomorrow. I'm joined here in studio by Susan Lohan of the Adoption Rights Alliance. Uh, Susan, I'm going to have to start with the yeah. fact that survivors have waited nearly five years for this report. And yet it was leaked, details yeah. of it, in a Sunday newspaper. How hurt are they? E extremely hurt because the Commission of Investigation was given several extensions to their deadline. This report should have been published in the beginning of 2017. They received, the Commission received three deadline extensions um, without any consultation with survivors. It's not clear why the delays ensued because... As we know, the Commission only covered 14, uh, 18 institutions out of a potential 180 sites where these gross human rights abuses occurred. So it was always it was always said and stressed to the survivors that their welfare, their their feelings would be considered when it came to the final and much delayed release of this of this report. That has not happened. So it's a complete slap in the face. And the Taoiseach and the Taunashta are both out today saying, look, there'll be an investigation into who leaked mm. you know, elements of this report. And I know Roderick O'Gorman wrote to survivors yesterday and apologised. Does yeah. that go away in some way to kind of appeasing people? No, because uh, Roderick O'Gorman um, has not actually engaged at all with survivor groups since taking office. Uh, there's a, a dedicated group of survivors called the Collaborative Forum 
which was appointed to advise the Department of Children and Youth Affairs, as it was previously called. And Roderick O'Gorman has not engaged with us at all. I, I also sit on that group. In fact, this is the second apology that he's had to issue two survivor groups uh, in the last two months. So it's, it's very unfortunate, uh, but it's really, really hurtful for survivors. Survivors will get a look at the report tomorrow yeah. online. Well, it'll be a summary of the report because remember, well, the, the numbers of pages keep changing. It's somewhere between three and 4,000 pages. It's going to take weeks, if not months, for people to read, never mind digest that. So we'll have a summary of the report tomorrow and we are hopeful, it's, it's fingers crossed, that the Commission will address the overarching um, concerns of survivors. We don't want to know, as reported in the Sunday Independent, about women being or mothers being forced to clean floors and stairs. We want a commentary, an explanation as to why the state, since its very infancy, sought to set up these, these places of incarceration. Uh, why unmarried mothers were singled out for this extremely abusive and traumatic um, treatment, why there was forced family separation, why was it that women were detained without leave, why were they forced to do work, and I'm not, I'm not talking about trivial things like cleaning stairs, but some women were forced to work in, in the fields or the farms. But most of all, we need to know why in 2021, state agencies such as Thusla are still treating um, adopted people or anybody born in a mother and baby home in a sort of quasi-criminal way, assessing the harm we will cause to other people. And we know the government has said that they're going to look at uh, the legislation to ensure, you know, um, those children born within those homes can access information about their brother, yeah. birth mothers as a priority. Yeah. Do you believe that? Well, I think the devil is in the detail because in some of the statements made by Minister O'Gorman prior to Christmas, he was suggesting that, yes, adopted people or anybody born in a mother and baby home would have the right to apply for their records. That's very different to so actually giving... Access. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I know you're concerned that people, you know, will get lost in the minutiae of some of the, you know, grotesque, brutal details yeah. contained in this report. Um, but I was struck yesterday by that figure on the front of the Sunday Independent, that one in every seven of yes. children born in that, um, in those, you know, units or yeah. facilities died. That's nine thousand children yeah. passed and away. It was harrowing. What is it like for mothers and children born there and the survivors yeah. to read that? Because you know the, the rationale sold by the the state and church to the Irish to to Irish citizens was that these children were better off being removed from their mothers and being put in these incarcerated incarcerative environments, and and actually they should have been they should have been better off there because the standard of food, um, the, you know the centralised locations should have meant that they were properly cared for. They should have received proper medical care. To discover, as you say, that one in seven of them died, um, is just well, it, well, it's it's beyond grotesque. And for mothers reading that report without any support on Sunday morning, it meant that even more of them now are are beginning to think. Did my child ever make it out of that institution? All of those years that I've been thinking about my son or daughter, he or she could be buried under a slab somewhere on the grounds of that, org of that institution. And I, 
sincerely hope that the Commission hasn't just focused on Tuam because the death rate in places like Bespra, you know, as uncovered by the, the great journalist Conal O'Farta, actually exceeded the Tuam death rate by, by considerable numbers. And as yet, we don't know where the children who died at Bespra, where they are buried. So, so the, many questions still outstanding. Yes, and it seems, yes. um, and you speak about that journalist with the Irish Examiner who wrote about foreign adoptions yes. that took place uh, in uh, these institutions, but it appears that the Commission couldn't find any evidence to prove or disprove that. How well, difficult is that going to be? Yeah, well, I think, of course, because of the very narrow terms of reference which former Ministers for Children, Charlie Flanagan and James Riley, persisted with, they insisted that, you know, a kind of a sampling of institutions would be sufficient. Had they looked at the broader issue of forced adoption in Ireland and feminism, family separation, they'd have hit upon disgraced adoption agency St. Patrick's Guild, which is, you know, which was involved in the greatest number of um, trafficking of children to the US. And they kept excellent records. And I have no doubt that were somebody to trawl through their records, they would find evidence of the profiteering. Um, do you feel that there's any closure for those survivors within this report? Uh, it remains to be seen. The devil is actually in the detail and it very much depends on the, the timeliness of the redress measures which uh, individual survivor groups and the government's own collaborative forum of survivors, if they, they seek to enact those recommendations very swiftly. So that's access to records, um, an establishment of where all the bodies, where all the bodies of the babies and the children are buried, um, an an absolute and clear apology to survivors, um, an establishment of a national archive centre, memorialisation and education, you know, in that time-honoured uh, ideology of lest we forget, we must not repeat these errors ever again. All right, we'll leave it there. Thank you for your time. Susan Thank you, Kira. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised during that discussion uh, this evening, emotional support is available in confidence on the helpline number that is on your screens now. After the break, the race to vaccinate the population against the virus. Where exactly does Ireland stand? Stay with us. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG.
very welcome back. Now, returning to the pandemic, there's a growing focus on vaccines as the state's rollout of its vaccination programme continues. Today, Moderna said deliveries of its vaccine to EU states has begun with quantity expected here later this week. Well, I'm joined now by Dr David Tanzi, a specialist registrar working uh, in general practice. Good uh, evening to you, doctor, and thank you for coming in. You've read the government's vaccination strategy. What did you make of it and, and how would you characterise our rollout here to date? Good evening, Kira, and thanks very much for having me on the show. Um, yeah, I've read the, the it's a 56-page document, and it's a very good high-level document, but um, at the time that it was written last December, uh, it said that there was a lot of details missing, and that detail would be filled in once we knew vaccine um, delivery schedules. Now that we were further along on the track with the COVID-19 vaccine delivery, we have assurances from the EU, we have better assurances from the pharmaceutical companies about when these vaccines are, are, are being delivered. So it's now time to get down and iron out the nitty gritty in this um, document, this strategy document. We need to know uh, when, this when these vaccines are going to be rolled out, who's going to be giving them. An important element of the document uh, that the, the government are constantly referencing is about GPs and community pharmacists rolling out this uh, vaccine. Now, uh, both my wife and my mother are GPs in Sligo and Dublin, and they've had no communication in relation to uh, when they're expected to roll out the vaccine. And it's crucially important, uh, over 90% of um, GP practices are computerized. So it would be quite easy for them to identify the at-risk priority groups that they need to be scheduling now. And I guess when, when the vaccines came here in December, there was almost an element of surprise um, you know, it took us a good while to get going, and I appreciate that it's a very large uh, logistical and operational uh, endeavour that Ireland is undertaking now to vaccinate everyone. But it's important that we learn from our mistakes. We, we learn from the early, uh, you know, slow start that we had, and that when the new vaccines roll out, particularly the 3.3 million vaccines arriving in February and March, we need this to... the AstraZeneca vaccine? No, these are the new Pfizer vaccines that um, the EU... So the EU last week uh, guaranteed another 330 million vaccines, of which Ireland will get 3.3 million additional va Pfizer vaccines. And the, these will be arriving, they think, end of February, start of March. We need to know when these arrive in Dublin Airport, where they're going, who's going to administer them and who they're going to, because that detail is lacking at the moment and it's in everyone's interest to get this right. But do you accept, Doctor, that perhaps some of this is beyond the government's control because our supply is coming from a centralised EU source? Or is that too easy an excuse? No, it is definitely an issue. We're signed up to the EU bulk buying. So, you know, I appreciate there's a lot of commentators saying, look at Israel, they've 20% of their population vaccinated. Look at the UAE, they've 10%. Even look at the UK, they have 2 million people vaccinated now. And that's slightly an unfair comparison because we need to compare ourselves to our EU peers. But even in the league table of EU, EU countries, we're languishing mid to bottom table at the moment, you know, so it has been a very slow start. The likes of Denmark 
have nearly 2% of their population uh, vaccinated. Uh, similar in, in Poland and uh, Portugal, they're doing much better. So we really need to uh, now use this time before the uh, huge amounts of vaccines arrive in Ireland to get planning, because this is the biggest uh, logistical and operational uh, endeavour that the state will have ever taken on. And what are they doing that we're not doing? Yeah, well, this, it's an interesting question. I guess, you know, the specifics were ironed out very quickly in, in a lot of those countries, particularly in Denmark. They hit the ground running. They had uh, 40,000 uh, people vaccinated in 2020 by the time it was rolled out, whereas we only had 1,900. So they really hit the ground running very quickly. And that's purely organisation. We have the doctors, we have the nurses, we have the healthcare assistants who are ready and willing to fight and to vaccinate. Uh, you know, 24-7, we've seen huge uh, courage from all the staff on our front line who want to get this vaccine to where it counts. And what's needed now is follow through from the government where we have the support and the organisational structure to support that. Because what's interesting is you can't just administer this vaccine. There is a little bit of training that is required. And I understand that a training is online, you know, at the moment, is on a HSE portal. But there's three members of the medical profession in your family. Have any of those been asked to complete the training at this point, for example? Yeah, so as I was saying, you know, my wife and my, my mother are GPs. Ne neither of them have been asked to complete the training or have been uh, given any indication of when they should start prioritising their at-risk patients. And, and it's a thing that's happening again and again. I'm getting patients come in to me who have chronic diseases, diabetes, and they're asking, when am I going to get this vaccine? Is it a case that I need to be canvassing the TD to make sure that I'm on the first list? Is it a case that I need to be, uh, you know, right into my GP to make sure that I'm on, on the list? So I think the communication needs to be better from the HSE. Um, we have a lot of sort of high-level general plans, but we really need to get down to the nitty-gritty now. And patients need to be told, do you need to sign up for a program or will you be identified as uh, according to your risk group? So I think clarity at this stage is what's really needed because the, the people of Ireland have been through enough. We've had a, a really tumultuous year and it's an opportunity for the HSE and the government to provide some level of certainty to, to the people of Ireland. And I know you have some concerns too, Doctor, about the prioritisation of you know, patients and frontline workers and hospital staff at the moment, that perhaps it isn't actually uniform across the country. This is another issue on the ground. Um, you know, we saw in the Sunday Independent yesterday, there was a report, a HSE document showed that at one of the Cork hospitals, six times as many management were vaccinated as um, frontline health workers. There, there was another report in the journal.ie last week that ICU nurses in a Dublin hospital couldn't get the vaccine because they were told when they went down that it was done on a first come, first serve basis. And they had to return to ICU to treat their COVID patients without the vaccine. So it, there, there is elements of disparity across the country. It seems that we have a high level policy, but then the vaccines are dropped to the local hospitals and the local hospitals then are in charge of the rollout. And in places that is patchy, it's not following the, um, the government's strategy plan. And the strategy plan is good because it gets the vaccine to those who need it the most, the most at-risk groups. And if we stick to this strategy plan, 
that will give us a platform out of this COVID-19 pandemic in the medium to long term. It's not going to treat the current numbers. Uh, the only thing that's going to treat those current numbers is social distancing and staying at home. But the COVID-19 vaccine, if we get it right, that can provide us with an ability to get out in the medium to long term. All right. Uh, we'll have to leave it there, uh, Dr. David Tanzi. But thank you for your time this evening. There have been some vaccine success stories. Over 90% of staff at the National Maternity Hospital have already been vaccinated. The master of the hospital is Professor Shane Higgins, and he joins me now for more. This is a very positive uh, story, uh, Professor. Not just for me, <laughs> I should admit. You heard about the vaccine last Tuesday. You got a phone call to say the vaccine would be delivered by Thursday and you really hit the ground running. Tell me exactly what happened. What was the process? Well, good evening, Kira. Um, yeah, so we had a hint and a suggestion from Ireland East, which is our network, um, that we were going to get some vaccines probably on Thursday morning. Uh, we heard that first of all on Tuesday afternoon. And um, we have a team within the hospital, the COVID um, team that has been meeting really almost on a daily basis um, since last March and we quickly put into action what we felt was the best plan for getting that vaccine distributed to staff. Now we didn't know until Thursday morning actually how many um, we were going to receive, how many doses of the vaccine we were going to receive. So um, come Thursday morning we realised we did have enough to vaccinate all the staff in the hospital and we put out a call and we uh, allowed patient, our staff to register for the vaccine. And then between lunchtime on Thursday and lunchtime on Saturday, we vaccinated approximately a thousand staff. And then we continued that on through Saturday and finished it this morning. Uh, we had some vaccine doses left over, so we offered them to the Royal Victoria Eye and Ear Hospital and the Dublin Dental Hospital and some GPs in the area as well. So, you know, uh, as a hospital, we are used to vaccinating programs. We've done the flu vaccine last winter. so. It was just really mobilising enough staff and uh, organising ourselves properly. And who, Professor, administered the vaccines? Uh, well, we have um, designated vaccinators who are trained to provide vaccines. And we had approximately seven of those staff. And they all they did was administer the vaccine. And then we had our anaesthetists and our pharmacists draw up the doses of the vaccine um, to maximise the efficiency of the operation. So we had approximately 30 people at any time involved in the vaccination programme throughout Thursday, all day Friday, Saturday and this morning. So it was a quick and rapid mobilisation of sufficient staff to allow us to do it properly. And what percentage of staff wanted to be vaccinated and how many were you know, uncomfortable or hesitant or perhaps had you know, underlying reasons why they couldn't get vaccinated? Well, very few. We feel at this point in time that we've got somewhere between 95 and 97 percent of all staff vaccinated in this first round. Um, as I said, we did we did tour the hospital at various times over the weekend to offer it to anyone who may not have heard about it through the email service that we have in the hospital. Very few turned it down. Uh, we didn't interrogate those that did as to why. Um, but I think we've got somewhere between 95 and 97 percent vaccinated at the moment. And no suggestion, a Professor, of taking those who didn't accept the vaccine off the front line at the moment? Uh, no, there isn't. I mean, I think as a hospital, we have adapted very well to the pandemic over the last 10 months. And that's that's down to, that's testimony to the staff and how they've adapted and performed over the last 10 months. So we had created essentially a hospital within a hospital so that we could look after COVID suspected or positive patients whilst the rest of the hospital functions quite normally. And that's worked very well for us. And uh, we've continued to do that even through the second and now third wave of the pandemic.
And we know maternity hospitals have you know, faced pretty stringent restrictions in terms of partners to be able to to attend scans or you know, to be able to visit you know, a partner who has had a baby in one of the hospitals. Can they be eased in any way now in the National Maternity Hospital, given the fact that so many of your staff have been vaccinated? Well, I suppose there's a couple of things to say. We have uh, maintained our current visiting guidelines. So partners are allowed in for all of labour and delivery. They're allowed in for two hours per day, every day thereafter. They're allowed to attend the 20, 22-week scan. So we haven't rolled back on those um, guidelines in the last two, three, four weeks. So they've continued to do that. Um, it's important to appreciate that um, whilst the staff are being vaccinated, they can still transmit the virus. And um, this all comes back to those very uh, simple principles of bare below the elbows, uh, hand washing, social distancing, wearing appropriate face mask and visor. So that all needs to continue for the staff of the National Maternity Hospital despite this vaccination programme, and that's of key importance. So uh, in, in terms of the visiting, um, our, our visiting is as liberal as I feel it's going to be, um, bearing in mind that uh, we, we still have to maintain as little footfall through the hospital as possible, okay. whilst bearing in mind you know, what the patient's requirements are. And I have to say, and I'm delighted to have the opportunity to say that I think that pregnant patients and maternity patients have really um, adapted very well also. I think they've looked after themselves so well in terms of isolation and cocooning. All right. That not only applies to them themselves, but also to their family, so that their family bubble. So that's reduced the risk to other patients and to staff when they have come into the hospital. Okay. All so right. in turn, we're going to maintain our, 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 our key principles in terms of trying to minimise the risk to patients. All right, we leave it there. Uh, congratulations on the rollout in the National Maternity uh, Hospital. That is some good news, Professor Shane Higgins. We're going to leave it there. Lots more to come as the children of Ireland go back to remote learning. What about those children with special educational needs? We hear directly from two parents next. Groups representing children with special needs have expressed concern about the school closures and the pressure they put on parents and children. When Angelina Hines is a parent facing those difficulties and she joins me now with her story. Angelina, thank you for joining us. Your daughter Zoe attends Rosedale um, Special School and obviously couldn't return to the classroom this week. I know it's twofold, isn't it, the impact this has on Zoe. The distress of not returning to school and then the regression because she's missing out on so much. Yes, first of all, thank you for having me on tonight. And I suppose I'm here to represent the Parents Association of Rosedale School. Um, it, it, it's impossible to describe. So our children all have severe to profound intellectual disabilities. So it means our children are different to other children out there. Their level of understanding is so much different. They don't understand. So for Zoe, she doesn't get why she's not going to school. She doesn't understand why the school bus isn't arriving every morning and bringing her to her. It's a holistic centre for her. It's her education centre. It's where everything happens for her, from her education to her development, to all the holistic therapies she needs, to it being her social hope. So she has no idea. Her world has shrank to basically three rooms in the house, her bedroom, the kitchen and a playroom. And, and that's it. That is all she has left right now. And describe the level of frustration that she feels? Well, this morning I 
observed my two sons sitting at a kitchen table doing their homework or some attempt at homework. At least they have an education plan in place. And I looked at my daughter who was in her standards, a specialized piece of equipment, watching a cartoon on television, crying. And she was wearing a polo neck jumper and she was pulling it and she just looked so distressed, so confused, absolutely no idea what was going on. And because of her intellectual disability and she's nonverbal and we have all those other issues, I can't explain to Zoe what's happening, why it's happening and when it'll be different. And equally, Zoe can't express how she feels to me. So we have to guess how she feels at all times. You know, she can't go outside and jump on a trampoline and get her aggression out that way or her frustrations. So when Zoe's like that, when she gets distressed, she's able to sit up unaided, but she will actually throw herself backwards like that, whack, and her head will hit whatever's on the floor or whatever's in the way. It could be the leg of a table. It could be a toy. And, you know, then she's even more distressed because she's hurt and injured. So her school being closed is just... I don't have the words to describe it. It is absolutely heartbreaking. It is devastating and it is all wrong. We are the only children in the country who woke up this morning with absolutely no education plan in place for them. Uh, Tom Clonan is also here in studio. And I know, Tom, you can relate to what Angelina is saying this evening. You can sense how harrowing it is for that child and that parent. Yeah. Well, before COVID hit, um, Ireland is the worst country in the European Union to have a disability, uh, either physical or so-called intellectual disability. So to begin with, we're outliers. And now that the crisis has hit, it's business as usual. Uh, carers, uh, children, adults with disabilities are absolutely at the bottom of the pile. And, and, and you can hear that in, in the interview, the, the, the despair and when uh, COVID came in March, when uh, the Tánaiste made his uh, speech from, from Washington, uh, closing down the country, our son, Owen, who's in his leaving search year, he, he just fell off a cliff. Um, and it has taken us 14 years to get him to this point. He is in a mainstream class. Yeah, and, and that's a point I wanted to make. Uh, in addition to all of our brothers and sisters who are in, in the special school system and in special classes. There are also thousands and thousands of children with disabilities and learning needs uh, that are integrated into the main school system. And your son, and that Owen, is, who's 18, is one of those children. Yeah, but I mean, you've no idea the struggle. Because Ireland is the worst country in, in, in Europe to have a disability, which is shameful, the struggle that we've had since he was a, an infant you know, to get him to eat independently, to be able to toilet, to even get him out the door in the morning. And here we are after 16 years in his leaving search year. He is already over in fifth and sixth year because of COVID closures. He's lost one quarter of that education and he's expected to go in and do the leaving cert in, in June. So what you want we, the leaving cert cancelled? Well, no, you? I don't or... think. No, what we need is an option for us to have predicted grades. I'm not calling for an end to the leaving cert. We are in exceptional circumstances. It's a crisis over which we have very little control. But what we can control is a decision to uh, modify the leaving cert this year to have an option to have predicted grades, so that somebody like my son, who's climbed such a you know a high. Uh, 
barrier to get to where he is has a fair chance and realises his potential. And all those other children out there, not only have things uh, been bad, but things have deteriorated since COVID came. Our physios, our OTs, out diverted to do tracking, tasting, testing and swabbing. You know, there needs to be a plan. And I would ask the minister... Uh, Minister Foley, make a decision okay. and make it in a timely fashion, please. The children need it. Uh, sorry we have to leave it there, but I promise we will come back to uh, this issue because it is so very important. And as children, parents and teachers face this education emergency, what are the best ways to learn remotely, I suppose, in this digital age? Well, Keir Riley is a lecturer in digital education and I asked her what she would say to stressed out uh, parents who are facing into homeschooling tonight. Well, firstly, Kira, I would say congratulations for surviving day one, one day down. Um, And I would also say to take a breath, to be kind to yourself and to remind yourself that you're trying to do this work during a pandemic, whilst also maintaining your own responsibilities. I think it's really important that we go into this school closure period with a real sense of perspective of just how difficult learning from home is. And I think we can start by not calling it homeschooling and reminding everybody that this is just emergency remote learning. And to go into this period with that mindset, taking care of their own mental health in the process. So very much, Kira, you know, saying to parents this evening, stop trying to replicate what children are doing at school. It's simply not possible. It is absolutely not possible. And you might feel like you need to absolutely compensate for the school day completely, particularly when it comes to timetabling activities during the day. But it is impossible to do at home what we do in school. Teaching is a complex craft. And if you throw in trying to work at home, trying to keep perhaps small children going, trying to maintain contact with relatives who may be um, uh, needing your care and support at this time too, it can be really, really difficult. So I would say in the first instance, you need to lean into the supports that your school are providing. We do go into this school closure period in much better shape as regards our ability to deal with and account for remote learning. So hopefully your school has some sort of a toolbox in place. Maybe you have a presence on an online platform or some other mechanism has been put into place to maintain contact with your school. And that's your first place to start. Secondly, I would say then there's a lot of supports out there, particularly TV supports. And that idea of using infotainment to entertain and to, you know, maintain an interest in a child that a child may have in their learning is, is really useful tool at this time. And of course, there's a lot of additional online supports that you can seek out too. I know, Kira, you say it is important, however, to structure a day that children do learn best in the morning, but perhaps in the afternoon when they're feeling a little bit more lethargic, that you can focus on their other interests, whether that's sport or music, or as you say, perhaps a little bit of television. That is okay too. Absolutely. I mean, look at how we as adults are dealing with this pandemic. We look to our own interests and we look to the things that make us happy and make us feel socially connected. So if we can find activities for children that are reflective of their own interests and hobbies, they are much more likely to sustain an interest in that activity and perhaps allow you to do what you need to do in the background or alongside them 
be it partaking in your own Zoom call or perhaps getting an opportunity to put out a bit of washing or whatever it is. We have to be practical here. Um, I do think as well this time, we need to be a lot more conscious that children need an opportunity to foster and maintain some social links during lockdown too. Just like us, they need to see their friends and family. And on this lockdown, I'd like to see that schools might, during the school closure period, maintain more meaningful contact with pupils through the use of, say, video conferencing, etc. Research has told us that that is what children really missed out on the most during the last school closure period. Because remember, our schools are relational. It's all about relationships. And whilst you may be well able to maintain activities in the home, they are missing their friends. They are missing the social cohesion that only our schools can provide for them. Kira Riley there on the pressures and indeed the opportunities of digital learning. And good luck to all parents and pupils and teachers again tomorrow. Well, that's it from us tonight, from all of the team here. Good night and do stay safe. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.